Well, good morning. Welcome back to church. Grab a seat if you haven't already. We're going to continue on with our service. I'd love to invite you to fill out a welcome card if you're new so that we'll have a record of your attendance. My name's Zach, and I'm the pastor here. I think I know most everybody here just from the looks of things. I just got back from 50 to 60 degree weather. Are you jealous? It was awesome. It was wonderful. It was a break we needed, needed badly. I just heard someone in the break say, and others, how much you uh, enjoyed August last week. Uh, those of you who were here, August Hoffman from Northridge Church, and I was, I'm glad he was able to uh, come and to preach. I uh, want to remind you that today, I'm surprised I don't see any Packer gear in the room. It's, there's a little bit, actually, there's a lot, <laughs> scarf and everything. Okay, it's Packers Playoff Sunday. If you didn't know, I hope you were planning on watching the game today. I hope you have a meal prepared. I hope you live it up because it's Packers Playoff Sunday, and on average, there's only one or two of these a year, okay? So, so enjoy. You're just now getting that, aren't you? So, so enjoy today. Enjoy. We have asked you uh, to ask and answer this question over the course of 2020. I want to remind you, the question is, who's your one? Uh, who is the one person that you've been praying for, seeking to build a relationship with, asking God to give you an opportunity to share Christ with, inviting to church? Who is that individual? Who is that person? If nothing else, I hope by now you've been praying about it. I hope you're intentional about getting to know that individual. I trust you will invite them to church. I just, uh, this morning, was greeted by somebody who handed me two membership covenants. They want to join the church. Isn't that awesome? Um, so, and this is Mike and Sue Hightree, actually. Wave at me, Mike and Sue. Welcome them, welcome them to the Mill Church as members. Will you do that? Join me in giving them. I don't normally do that, but I'll just tell you the story about this couple at Curtin and Leanne, um, Kurt and Leanne Stricky, who've been tending here a number of years, and, and Mary um, Schwarz now Shanks um, at Mary's wedding to Cody. Um, Shan and I just happened to be sitting across from Mike and Sue at the table during the reception. And we got to know them, and we invited them to church. And they came. We couldn't believe they came, but they came. And, well, thank you. And even better fried chicken, right? And, but, but you came, and God um, has been at work in their lives, and, and now they want to be a part of this church family. And, and so I just want to encourage you, you never know um, what can happen as the result of uh, um, inviting somebody to church. So just um, be intentional about your friendships, about your relationships with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your friends. I hope you've identified your one. Now listen to what I'm going to say next. Uh, today's text may be the most important passage. Um, I don't know that it's the most entertaining or engaging, or, but it's the most important 
theological passage that we're going to take on uh, in the book of Romans. And I don't believe, I'm trying to assess this honestly, I don't believe uh, this is my own magnification or hyperbole or trying to make this into something it's not. I believe it's that central, that pivotal to the doctrine of God and how he operates. And, and some scholars even say it's the most important text. I won't take it this far, but in the whole Bible. Uh, Martin Luther said himself, uh, Romans 3, 21 through 26, which we'll read, is the chief point, the central place of the epistle and of, he says, the whole Bible. Leon Morris says it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. I will also give you a heads up. We love dearly our Catholic brothers and sisters. We partner with them ecumenically. Um, we uh, very much enjoy their fellowship. We had a number of them and Lutherans and others here on uh, Thanksgiving week. Um, but I will tell you that this most crucial passage perhaps uh, distinguishes Catholic beliefs from Protestant beliefs most clearly. Um, isn't it the baptism of babies and adults that matters most? Um, no, it is not. Um, isn't it the communion thing where, where we believe it's symbol and, and others believe it's the literal body and blood of Christ? Well, no, it is, it is not. Um, in fact, if you've ever asked yourself, what does the Mill Church teach that differs from what I learned in my Catholic church growing up, uh, the passage that we're going to look at today is what we ought to point out first in indicating the difference. Um, it is the key distinction. So let's start where we left off last time. It's been a few weeks. Paul's been building up a rather linear argument here and layer by layer. So I'll start with verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For by works of the law, that is good works that the law tells us to do, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of what? Sin. Knowledge of sin. Awareness of sin. Knowing what sin is. Uh, so by way of catch up, Paul has spent nearly two chapters, chapters two and now three, um, in a, a, an effort to say why the law is an insufficient answer to the universal human problem of sin. By review, what is the law? A law, a law, is, is simply, it's a, it's a religious word that we use to, to mean a list, a list of things to do, a list of things not to do, a list of things to say and not to say. The idea is, do these things, and if you do them well, or at least this is what religion would teach you, you will live. And that is actually the basic premise that all religion thrives on, um, is that if you do these things well, you'll live, you'll inherit eternal life. I obey, and therefore, I am accepted. That's what religion says. The problem with that age-old way of thinking um, is multifaceted. First, you cannot change the human heart by giving the human heart laws. You just cannot. 
Um, it'd be like saying that we can change our, our taste buds or our palate um, that I could, I'll make this personal, by giving myself more rye bread. Okay, I love nearly all food. Rye bread is a rare exception. I cannot stand rye bread. I can occasionally, if a Reuben has a lot of meat and other flavors, tolerate um, what's called uh, marbled rye bread. But I cannot stand rye bread. Um, so, so again, uh, maybe something more, more subtle, but you can't give me more rye and expect me to like rye. It just doesn't work that way. Um, we use the example of pigs eating slop. To keep a pig from eating slop, you'd have to put a barrier between the pig and the slop. The moment you remove the barrier, what happens? The animals go hog wild and they eat the slop. And so the, the, the idea that you could put a law in between humans and the slop of sin and convince them not to love sin is ridiculous. The moment they get around or usurp the law or crash through it or rebel against it, they're going to roll around in and enjoy the slop. So God wants people not to be in heaven um, because they've avoided the slop of, of sin because he's commanded them to avoid the slop of sin. God wants people in heaven who are there because they don't want the slop. They don't want it. Not because they were told not to do it, but because they delight in doing good and in obeying. And because they're more attracted to God than they are sin. And they've discovered God is better than the slop. And they know that they are most fulfilled when they are obedient. So, so that's a problem. We, we don't get, we don't change the human heart by, by creating laws. Um, secondly, with the law... Um, doing good works in order to secure our salvation is inherently selfish. Just think about it. The attitude is, I'm doing this for me. I'm going to do these good works for me uh, so that my future will be better and, and brighter. Um, this is what will benefit me in my eternity. Therefore, I'm going to choose not to say it's the wrong motivation. Does that make sense? So uh, the third problem with the law, and this is what Paul, Paul will really focus on today, our sin leaves us legally guilty before God, and there is no amount of good works that can repair the damage that we've done. It's simply impossible to overcome our shortcomings with good. Um, imagine that someone broke into your house and stole some of your stuff. Um, we were glad when we got back that that hadn't happened and that our thermostat had continued to remind the furnace to kick on. That's always a win when you return from being gone for a few days. Um, imagine somebody broke into your house and stole some stuff and they got caught 
and, and then they're standing before the judge to argue why they stole your stuff, and they say things like this. But judge, I served on the Stratford Village board for years. And, and I uh, donated a ton of toys for tots. And I attended my life group at the Mill Church. And, and you would say, uh, rightly so, that's great, that's awesome, but it doesn't restore the lost belongings that you stole from my, from my home. See, sin violates. Sin destroys. Sin steals. Sin overturns the righteousness and justice of God. Psalm 89, 14 says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Justice is at the foundation of everything that God is. And so, for creation to remain good, there has to be justice. For creation to be sustainable, justice must be upheld. So Paul will explain today, the purpose of the law is not to produce righteousness in human beings. It's not to make them any better. The purpose of the law is to show us how messed up we really are. That is the purpose of the law. That has always been the purpose of the law. Not to change the human heart. It cannot treat anything. It can only diagnose. That's how it works. And the purpose of the Ten Commandments even, I will argue, is not to change us. It is to show us where we need to be changed. That is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Um, to show you, and Paul will even take it this far, that you cannot follow them. A couple weeks ago, we, uh, we walked through each one, a few weeks back, and we showed you how Jesus took man, a number of them to another level. Um, even if you don't commit adultery, you can think of someone outside of the context of marriage lustfully in your, in your mind, with your heart. That's breaking the commandment. So all of them, Jesus seems to take to another level with no amount, this is the point, with no amount of sincerity, with no amount of elbow grease, can we measure up to the standards of the perfect one who is God. And therefore, therefore, Paul will articulate that we need outside help. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. We achieve God's righteousness outside of the law, outside of obeying the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, through faith, big word, in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have what? Sin and fall short of the glory of of God, and are, what's that word, justified by his, what, the law, by obeying the rules, justified by his grace as a, did we earn it? No, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ 
Jesus, whom God put forward, we'll look at this next big word too, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show not our righteousness, but whose? God's. It's not about us. It's about him. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What a bunch of important words we have here. Uh, let's first look at a verse that my grandmother um, inclined me to memorize. She quoted this with me often. Um, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's talk about those words, fall short. Um, it's an archery word, the word sin, falling short. Um, you miss the mark. I remember being an ex inexperienced bow hunter. Um, Bob Carlson, I don't know how many uh, know or remember Bob, but he used to let me hunt on his land between Marshfield and Stratford. And I remember sitting in Bob's woods in a stand and, and uh, seeing three mature doe coming in at what I thought was about 35 yards out, 40 yards out. Turned out they were 45 to 50 <laughs> yards out, and they sat there eating acorns, and I got very excited because I had taken harvested few animals at this point, and I took an arrow, and I released it. And it went right under her chest and into the dirt. And she did this and then didn't move and kept eating acorns. So I knocked another arrow and I pulled it back and I shot again. And it went right underneath her chest cavity, right between her legs. And she did this again. And then she kept eating acorns. So I knocked another arrow, third time. And I pulled it back and shot. And what happened? I missed again. Right in between her legs, same spot, right underneath her chest cavity. For those of you who don't like hunting, you'll be happy to know that she walked off. <laughs> she got away from me. And so I remember missing the mark. And, and what Paul is saying is we all miss the mark in life. And to the end of realizing that we miss the mark, the Bible, the law, is a precious gift to us. Because it shows us where we miss the mark. The Bible gives us great understanding. In what ways? Well, imagine if we didn't have the law. We would think that murder was okay, and gossip was okay, and stealing was okay, and slander was okay, and coveting was okay, and greed. It's okay. But the Bible points out that they're not okay. And so we have this beacon, we have this guide, and, and, and we'd end up thinking, had we not the guide, we're not all that bad. So without the law, we become a, an archer who misses the mark and, and says, uh, when his friend asks, how did you do? Oh, I did great. I missed three times, but I found all three arrows in the ground, and I drew bullseyes around them. It's a perfect day. No. The, the rules of hunting, the law of hunting, tell you that you're there not to miss, but to hit the target that you're aiming at. That's the purpose of hunting. So the law, and particularly the Ten Commandments, show us the real target. 
and they reveal how far we are from the target. So no one can be justified by the works of the law. Think of it this way. The purpose of the law, again, is not to repair, but to diagnose. Uh, The law is the thermostat that tells us the spiritual temperature of our hearts. But alone, it cannot change the temperature. You need the heat source independent of the thermostat. They're connected, but you need the heat source to do that. You need God to change the human heart. Um, Think of uh, railroad tracks. Railroad tracks guide the train in the right direction, but they're powerless to move freight. The tracks can't do it. It takes the engine. So Paul wrote Romans 2 and 3, actually, and you may have sensed this. I have sensed, I think, you sensing this. I think I have sensed you sensing in our study thus far in the book of Romans this. I've, I've sensed you sensing, oh my goodness, I am powerless. I am powerless. Um, you may have felt even godless. You may have felt hopeless. You may have felt insufficient. You may have felt in this study of the book of Romans sad. Make no mistake about it. That's Paul's intent. That's his, his intent. That's his setup for where we're going soon. He wants you to feel as though you are spiritually drowning in order to crush any notion that you can impress God by being good. We read the word justified. This is the word that Luther said launched the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day taught that justification, justification was a process by which God made you into a righteous person, or rather that you yourself made you into a righteous person by by following seven sacraments, baptism and communion and confirmation and last rites and, and so on. And so the thought was that eventually, if you followed the sacraments, if you observed them carefully, if you confessed your sins, if you did good, you would over time become in God's sight justified. And if, by the time you died, you were not righteous enough, you would go to purgatory where your sin would be purged from you through fire and suffering, purgatory, purgatory. Um, And if you felt like you were going there in advance, even, you could buy your way out. Uh, There was a common saying during the days of Luther, uh, when a coin in the coffer doth ring, thy soul from purgatory doth Spring, okay? But Luther pointed out that's not what the word justification actually means. Justification is not earning God's favor over a period of time or acts. Justification is a legal declaration that happens at once. It is not a process It's a pronouncement. 
It's God declaring your mind. That is justification. Justification doesn't even talk about or speak to the transformation of the human heart. That is sanctification. That's God pulling the weeds out of our beds over the course of, of time. In other words, God's righteousness isn't infused uh, into us, which, which is a word that, that's used, uh, was used in a lot of Catholic theology. It's credited or it's given to us, independent of what we do. Uh, think of it this way. Were you charged with a crime, uh, the Roman Catholic Church thought of justification as a seven-step program through which a judge would declare you, over the course of time, not guilty if you followed those seven steps. Martin Luther pointed out that, that when the judge declares us not guilty, he does so at once. And as we walk out, free men and free women, as if we've never been charged, and not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of the judge, then we respond with gratitude. Thanking our Father. And you say, that's not really fair. When I think about it, you're right. It's not fair that God gives us what we don't deserve. It's not fair. That's why some have called it scandalous grace. It just doesn't make sense. It's not tit for tat. It's not quid pro quo. How gracious is God? How wonderful is God? How splendid is God? You say, well, where did all my sin go? Where did all that go? Another central teaching of Christianity is that Jesus Christ, and this, these are words that are, are actually used, um, I, I think when Paul addressed the church of Corinth, he said Jesus became sin. Although he knew no sin, he became sin. When he was crucified. This means that on the cross, the, the sins of the entire human race were laid upon Jesus' head. Martin Luther said, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and cruel oppressor. You will become that David the adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, end quote. Jesus became our sin. And when John the Baptist even first saw Jesus, if you remember this, he saw Jesus coming from a distance. What did he say? He said, behold, behold. I, I envision him screaming it. Behold, the Lamb of God. Why did he use that phrase? It was not some pastoral, idealistic picture in John's mind when he said that. It, it wasn't a, a quaint image. He was saying, behold the one, the lamb, who will be ruthlessly slaughtered 
for the sins of many. Behold the sacrifice. Jesus became the teenager that lied to his or her parents. Jesus became the guy that wrecked a marriage. Jesus became the terrorist. Jesus became the one who cheated on his taxes. This is why Paul says, he became sin, who knew no sin. This is why we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Jesus became sin. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amen? Another word we see in verse 24 is that of redemption or redeem. To redeem means to buy something back, um, to bring it back from destruction, to restore it. And we're going to do this with some timbers that we found in a barn we bought. We're going to restore them. We're going to put them to good purpose and and use. We're going to reclaim them. Uh, Do you remember a scene from from my favorite uh, theological film, Dumb and Dumber? Do you remember this scene when Lloyd trades in their van for what? A moped. Do you remember this? To cross the country. Okay? And, and then Harry says, Lloyd, just when uh, I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and totally redeem yourself. Redemption. People use the word redeem when they buy something back from a pawn shop. If you fall in hard times, you can pawn your engagement ring, for example. And then when you get enough money to buy it back, you can walk back into the pawn shop. It's called redeeming it. Getting back the ring. What's it called when you trade in a coupon? It's called redeeming the coupon. When you, when you take your Quick Trip app and a notification pops up and it tells you you can buy a ribeye today for $3.99 and you take it to the counter and the gentleman says, that'll be $8.99, sir, and you say, oh no, maybe for some average smuck, but not for me. Look at this, $3.99, ribeye on my app. And he says, okay, you can redeem the coupon. Of course, you know, the cow is the real hero because the cow paid it all, right? It's a bad analogy. Should never have. And church, that is a picture of salvation. Uh, But you get the point. Jesus paid the full price to buy us back. He redeemed us. Another word, propitiation. It's a word that means God, God's wrath was turned or assuaged. His claim against you, it's settled. Um, it means God poured onto Jesus Christ the righteous anger that he had directed toward us. And contrary to what many have said, God's righteous anger toward sin does not contradict his love for us. They are complementary. It's a corollary to it. Uh, Let me ask you this. When you love somebody, do you love or hate the things that destroy them? Cancer. If you love somebody, what do you think about the cancer? 
that they're riddled with. You hate the cancer. What about the person who you love who's addicted? You hate whatever they're addicted to. This is how God feels about our sin. It's quite natural when you think about it to hate what destroys the ones that we love. So God's angry at our sin, and Jesus steps in, and he absorbs the full impact of the wrath and anger of God the Father on the cross. That is propitiation. And it can either be assuaged in one or two ways per person. It's either assuaged by the reality of hell permanently. That's how God's wrath will subside toward that person. Or it's subsided in the person and work of Jesus Christ if that person believes. Jesus wears the wrath of God. Last phrase we'll talk about this morning, verse 26. The one who has faith in Jesus. What is faith, really? What is, what is faith? We use it so flippantly, that term. Faith, as described, is not some blind leap. It's not. Faith is leaning in to everything that we trust Jesus will do for us and is for us. Faith is believing that our sins have really, you know, we did a study on the Truth Project several years ago, and the question that stuck with me was, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do you? Faith is leaning into Jesus and believing that my sins, the darkest things that I have ever done, that I'm ashamed of, have literally been taken off of me and placed on the person of Jesus. That is awesome news for me. It's awesome news for you. Every thought, every deed, absorbed by Jesus on the cross for the one who has faith in him. Faith is a commitment of yourself to someone who you may even know very little about. I remember being committed to Shannon before I knew much about her. I loved her long before she loved me. I chased her for months, honest to goodness. And she had a boyfriend in the meantime, and I was fretting. And, and then on the best day of her life, on June 21st of 2000. We were married, and I remember uh, not long after buying a Jeep Commander, and I love that Jeep. It is still my favorite car, I think, that I've ever owned. I love that Jeep, but I knew it meant that she and I needed to trade because we had two kids, and she spent the most time with the kids. And she had a, a dinky Honda Civic, okay? And her Civic was Shannon-sized, not Zach-sized. And her Civic had a horn whose sound was embarrassing. And I'll never forget on multiple occasions how I felt 
when I pulled her Civic up to Bullseye Sports in between multiple 4 by 4 pickups. But I drove that thing until recently. My point is that when you love somebody, you are willing to trade with them. You're willing. And, and, and so it is when Jesus commits to us. We get his position, his favor, his grace. He gets our sin, our shame, our condemnation. He gets the civic of your corruption. You get the commander of his sonship. You're his child. It's a win when you accept a life with Jesus. When you place your faith in him, even though you may have not known much about him. Corey Ten Boom, the woman who survived a Nazi concentration camp, said this. In the cross, God hurled our sins in the deepest part of the sea. And then he put a sign up there that says, no fishing allowed. They're gone. By the grace of God. And as Stacy said this morning, we get his peace. We sing a song lyric this morning that haunts me. Every time we sing it, and I don't I don't remember the words exactly, but it just says something like it's it's vague, it's meant to be read into, but it talks about like 8 million ways or 8 million times and it's a reference to the population of the earth billion excuse me and I was just sitting there this morning I was just thinking God you know we're not going to El Salvador this year we go every other year and and, we're not, and I have been multiple years but I just love those people and God died to save them and that's why we go. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we give faithfully. That's why some of us go ourselves. It's because we believe in the faith righteousness of God. That if others believe in him, they will inherit eternal life. So there's urgency and there's expediency. And, and these doctrinal points matter. They matter. Many of you, I would fear, live in at least times in just a vague sense of guilt and disapproval and fear. And I just want to remind you this morning that, that God's dealt with your sin. And there's no fishing allowed. You don't need to ruminate on the past anymore. You don't, you don't, in my southern upbringing, we'd say waller. You don't need to waller in your sin anymore. God's given you victory over them. He's given you a better choice. 
and we don't choose the better because there's a law up in between us and God, or I should say in between us and our sin. We choose God because he's glorious and good. And he loves us. He's better than the alternative. We have more joy, more peace. Martin Luther said, I'll conclude with this, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Can I just remind you this morning that you have the approval of a king by his grace. You have the love of God. You can lift up your chin. You can walk confidently to work. You don't have to think about the mistakes you've made on your ride home from church today. You have a God who is fighting for you, who pursues you, who who neither slumbers or sleeps, who knows every head on every hair on your head who who prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies who has even said that if you make your bed in hell he will go there with you that's how much he loves you will you bow your head this morning Would there be anybody here who would say, I just want to commit my life to Jesus. I want to become a Christian today. Or I just want to recommit my life to God this morning. I need him. I know it's not merit-based. I just need the grace, the gift grace of God. Anybody at all? Would you just lift your hand up so I can see your hand? Everybody's bowing their heads. Anybody want to commit their life to Jesus or recommit their life to Jesus this morning? Father, as we come to this table, I just pray, Lord, that we would see these elements and think of your body which was broken and your blood that was shed for our sins. I pray that we would, though also looking soberly, that we would joyously partake of these elements today, knowing that there is no fishing allowed, knowing that the sins are carried as far as the east is from the west, as far as as everything that science has discovered and yet to discover in the east, as far as that is from, from, from the same in the west. That's how far our sins have been removed, and that is a cause for great celebration. And so we come to this table this morning grateful, joyful, in Jesus' name, amen.